0: So I've just read Timothy Snyder's book On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. You may have heard of it because it's currently top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Tim Snyder is a Yale professor of history and he's collated his learning on the 20th century dictatorships and the conditions that gave rise to them into these 20 simple lessons we can all learn from our turbulent past. Now I highly recommend the book, I think everyone who hears this should buy it, it's a fascinating and very short read, it's like 80 pages, it'll take you less than a couple of hours. But I want to go through each of these 20 lessons in a series of the next couple of days. That sound alright? This book could not be more relevant. See the 20th century dictatorships arose as a direct response to the first wave of globalization and international trade in the late 19th century. because One uncomfortable truth is that globalization brings an average improvement in abstract terms like GDP, but it also produces, on a localized level, many forms of inequality. This is how Brexit happened over here, with people like me and other lawyers and bankers in big metropolises like London benefiting from globalization and voting to remain but people in smaller or rural communities had to deal with relocation, unemployment and a kind of immigration that impacted both their prosperity and their safety, so they voted Brexit. Globalisation, in addition to that, also breeds resentment because if you're not doing so well, you now have even more people to compare yourself to and to be jealous of. The 20th century dictatorships were a response to this. As Tim Snyder says, they they put a face on globalization. Oh, it's the capitalists' fault, or it's the liberals, or it's the Jews. Today, maybe you could say it's the Mexicans, it's the Muslims, and still the Jews. As I said in my earlier segment today, history is not something to be ashamed of, but it's something to learn from so we don't repeat past mistakes. And this focus on our mistakes is definitely the best part of Snyder's book, because it would have been easy to have made this book all about Trump, about how he's evil and all the parallels with those autocratic regimes. And as you can imagine, there's quite a few parallels, but that's not the point of the book. The point is about us, the people, about how we react to overreach, to, you know, the small things that erode our customs, our institutions and our constitutions until those acts become normalized and we're too desensitized to react. It's a bit like, you know, that old quote about boiling a frog alive by increasing the temperature slowly but incrementally so the frog doesn't notice the threat to its life. Snyder highlights, highlights rather, how complicit or merely complacent people were in many ways the biggest factor in the success of those 20th century tyrannies. And it's those lessons that we need to hear most carefully, because as always, the power is with us, both in good and in evil. We're going through each of the 20 lessons contained in On Tyranny, the book by Timothy Snyder, which came out a few weeks ago, and which is a fascinating look at how the 20th century dictatorships arose and what those circumstances have in common with today. The first lesson is do not obey in advance. Tim Snyder says most of the power in authoritarianism is given freely. This is the idea that after an early success by a ruler or a party, people voluntarily started adapting to the new situation and even anticipating what the ruler would demand and offering those things without being asked. This basically told the rulers what the people were happy to compromise without even being asked to. This anticipatory obedience, Snyder argues, taught power what it could do and what it could demand. The book gives uh, the example of the 1938 annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany. So no orders had been given, but local Austrian Nazi sympathisers immediately started capturing Jews and beating them and stealing their property. And even non-Nazis either took part in the looting or just looked on with curiosity. They did nothing about it. And this attitude really gave the Nazis an idea of what would be possible in the future. They went, oh, okay, so you're okay with this? Cool, then maybe you'll be okay with something bigger as well. And six months later, what do you know? We had the Kristallnacht, you know, the national pogrom, in which 200 synagogues and about 7,000 Jewish shops were destroyed or damaged, and which many count as the official beginning of the final solution. And this is why it's so important that when the Muslim ban was signed by Trump earlier this year, so many people turned up at airports to protest. Now, I don't usually agree with protests, and certainly not with all protests, but this one served a really strong purpose, because it clearly demonstrated that Americans would no longer put up with policies based on purely racial or ideological terms. Had there not been such a demonstration, fortunately we can only speculate on what might have happened next. So the lesson here is, we shouldn't just adapt without reflecting on what it is that's happening. We shouldn't assume that rulers truly have the power to do what they want and go with the flow. Because especially in the beginning, authoritarian rulers are weak and they rely on people to go along with what they want. And if we go along with it, they might take another inch. And if we obey in advance, they don't even need to take that inch because we hand it over freely. The second lesson in Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny is defend institutions. Institutions don't defend themselves, they aren't invulnerable to attack. They require our active support. So just because somebody comes to power through democracy and elections doesn't mean that they wish to maintain democracy or the electoral system. Sometimes those institutions can either be destroyed, which is what the Soviets did when they came to power, and transformed the system into a brutal one-party dictatorship. The whole institutions were based on the Soviet idea. Or the institutions can become shadows of their former selves, empty symbols. A bit like today's quote democracy in Russia, you know, you get Putin getting elected and when the constitution doesn't allow him to stand again, he'll step down again in quotes and be prime minister for a while until he can be elected again as president. This is also what happened with the Roman Emperor Augustus, who was consistently quote elected for 44 years until his death. So it was all just for show, right? The institutions are technically alive, but they're meaningless blind faith in the strength of our institutions can have horrible effects and this is a chilling quote in the book and it's uh, copied from a german newspaper in 1933 published just after hitler came to power now listen to this this is what the german liberals specifically the jews because it's a jewish newspaper thought would happen or rather what would not happen and they're talking about the nazis They will not suddenly deprive German Jews of their constitutional rights, nor enclose them in ghettos, nor subject them to the jealous and murderous impulses of the mob. They cannot do this because a number of crucial factors hold powers in check, and they clearly do not want to go down that road. When one acts as a European power, the whole atmosphere tends towards ethical reflection upon one's better self and away from revisiting one's earlier oppositional posture. So yeah, that's the German liberal Jews in 1933. Imagine the New York Times writing that today. And we all know what actually happened. Institutions don't mean anything without our defense. So the author's lesson is pick an institution you care about, whether it's a law or a newspaper or anything else, and take its side and stick to it. Make it a mission in life to defend your institutions. Beware the one party state. Dictatorships don't start off as these all-powerful systems or even as dictatorships, really. Instead, they usually win an initial election, a usual ordinary democratic election, just like the Nazis did in 1933, or the communists did in Czechoslovakia in 1945. And then they start slicing away at the opposition bit by bit. They distract the people while making it more and more difficult for the opposition to exist, until, voila, little do you know, you've got a one-party system. There's this amazing quote in the book. Quote, You don't know when you make love for the last time that you're making love for the last time. Voting is like that. It's brilliant, right? Tim Snyder, the author, asks, Do you think that the Russians voting in 1990 thought that those would be the last genuinely free elections they'd ever have? Because, guys, it's been almost 30 years since, and those are still the last three elections Russia's had. So it all starts by eroding the institutions from within through all sorts of means, and you guys in the States have got some crazy shit you're dealing with, from voter laws that I don't even understand, to gerrymandering which I also don't quite understand, and the frankly jaw-dropping influence of corporate interests in politics via campaign financing at a level we Europeans find just unbelievable. I'll read you this quote from the book. We believe that we have checks and balances, but have rarely faced a situation like the present, when the less popular of the two parties controls every lever of power at the federal level, as well as the majority of state houses. The party that exercises such control proposes few policies that are popular within the society at large, and several that are generally unpopular, and thus must either fear democracy or weaken it. Well shit guys, so I guess the lesson is, be vigilant and oppose all threats to the multi-party system, cause you might not like the guys across the aisle with their bibles or their political correctness, but having them there to argue with is a way better thing than the alternative. Lesson 4 of uh, Timothy Snyder's book On Tyranny is Take responsibility for the face of the world. And this one's a little controversial, or rather I'm going to make it a little controversial. So I thought it was stated a little poorly, but the point is this. We shouldn't ignore, normalize, or get used to the flourishing of symbols of division. Because the next thing you know, those symbols become the norm, and suddenly people who don't display the symbols are seen as suspicious. Tim Snyder starts by saying the symbols of today enable the reality of tomorrow and that's a bit of a Wittgensteinian way of looking at the world, you know, language shapes reality and in this case symbols like, say, swastikas. Now I'm not sure this is the best way to make the point, putting the emphasis on the symbols, because, I mean, okay, you see a swastika somewhere, you scrub it off, you denounce it, whatever, but what if the symbol is more subtle, what can you really do there? I kept imagining this after Brexit, right? That people started wearing these Britain first pins in their jackets. Well, just, you know, British flags, right? Here, a British flag is a bit like a Make America Great Again cap, you know? It's inoffensive on its own, but, you know, it might tell you something about the person wearing it. Not something necessarily negative, but it says something. But say more and more people start wearing the pin. And suddenly, a few years down the line, and uh, you're on a subway, and you look around, and 90% of the people around you are wearing the British flag pin. Now, other people might be looking at you, who are not wearing the pin, as an outsider. And maybe they're thinking, is he an enemy? And it doesn't have to be a British flag, it might be anything. It could be a feminist symbol, or it could be a hashtag Black Lives Matter t-shirt. The point is, the emphasis here shouldn't be on the symbol, but on herd mentality, the pack instinct. We must always question the pack instinct. And this is something I don't see enough of. And you know what? You might be nodding right now, but some of you do it too, you know. It's the reason I get way fewer shares whenever I talk about terrorism. Why is that? I mean, everything I'm saying is 100% factual, it's definitely reasonable and logical. And more often than not, it's also compassionate, I mean, if I say so myself, and I know this because I have yet to hear a single, and I mean a single one, just one, convincing argument calling in to say, oh no, you're wrong about this. I I literally have not seen one, but I don't get any applause for that because I'm not on script, am I? I'm not following the correct script that everyone's agreed on, apparently. You know, so if you share what I say on that topic, even if you can't find flaws in the argument, and seriously, if you do, please let me know, you will be published. You can't share that because it would make you an outsider, maybe. So that's the message, guys. Reject herd mentality, both in others and also in yourself. Lesson five from On Tyranny is remember professional ethics. And this one hits kind of close to home for me, because as a former lawyer, I had a very strict practice code that I had to adhere to, and that in many ways I still adhere to today, despite not being formally bound by it. Confidentiality is very important to me still, and I still have this contractual way of looking at interactions, whereby I'll act in certain ways that I know you're likely to predict, so that in case you base your actions on what you think I'll do, Uh, you won't be screwed over by me doing something unpredictable. Anyway, the author, Snyder, proceeds to list a bunch of lawyers who worked for Hitler, and who in some cases were responsible for some of the most gruesome acts of the war. There's this one guy who was Hitler's personal lawyer, then he became the governor of Poland and oversaw much of the brutality of the uh, Polish Holocaust. And he had this justification for what he was doing, saying that the law exists to serve the race. And so if it's good for the race, then it's legal. This makes me shake my head on so many levels because it's such an absurd perversion of Nietzsche's ideas on morality. But it's doubly shameful because the idea of the rule of law is so sacred to a fair society. This idea that the law is above rulers, it's above utility, it's above politics. It shouldn't be twisted to serve your purposes. But you see, the law isn't the point, because doctors broke their code of conduct to conduct uh, human experiments on Jews, businessmen exploited the slavery of the concentration camps, and so on. Your professional ethics matter because they serve as a higher ideal to serve, and at times they may provide a compass of sorts, you know what they call now a true north, that you can follow when the demands of the regime cross over the ethical boundaries, as well as they can also provide a strong justification for refusing to follow those orders. This is hopefully what's happening in the US now, where we're more and more relying on lawyers and judges to maintain their professional integrity in the face of increasingly alarming demands from the admin. But I want to throw a curveball in there. I see a lot of people applauding when the guys in the intelligence uh, community break their code of conduct by leaking info, by going behind the president's back, or possibly refusing to follow orders. In this case, I think we agree it's a breach of professional ethics, but it's in service of some higher good. And in a way I see the appeal of that, because we agree that Trump and his crew are either dangerous or incompetent or both. But should we really be okay with this? Should this become the norm? Because with deep government working against or behind the back of the administration, depending on whether they agree or not, I feel you cross a line. It's a difficult question because, of course, we want to avoid any form of autocracy. But is there a point where insubordination from the military or the secret services, if it becomes normalized, can be an even greater danger than an authoritarian president? I don't know. Hey guys, we're back with Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, 20 lessons we can learn from the early 20th century dictatorships and the circumstances that led to them. Circumstances which uh, have a number of worrying parallels with the social-political environment we're living through today. Anyway, lessons 6-8 to of the book can be summed up as BE AN INDIVIDUAL, don't be afraid to stand out, reject in-group, out-group thinking. Now you know that that's a major pet peeve of mine, so uh, forgive me if for the next few minutes it sounds like I'm ranting at you, but here's a question. Would you have gone along with Nazism? Because I'm going to say yes you would, and I genuinely mean you, but don't worry, I'm going to give you a chance to prove me wrong by the end of this. Here's a fact. In the Holocaust, you'd have tens of thousands of Jews being executed in shooting pits, most of whom were being killed by members of the regular police and armed forces. This wasn't a just following orders thing, these acts were not actually sanctioned by law, they were initiatives of the paramilitary, like the SS, who were counting on the cooperation of the legal police. Now, those who refused to take part in the shootings were not actually punished, yet most of the other policemen took part anyway. Why? Well because they didn't want to appear as outsiders, as dissenters, they didn't want to be different, they were afraid of going against the herd. They were debasing their own morals so as to not appear different from the tribe. This is yet another manifestation of that tribalism I'm always going on and on about, not wanting to be an outsider. There's so much of it around these days, it's worrying. From the Trump rallies at which seemingly normal people get riled up into a frenzy and go and look for dissenters so that they can kick out, to all the brainwashed, quote, progressives who gang up and intimidate people who dare not share their ridiculous dogma. It most recently happened to me for using the word wife beater to refer to, you know, the sleeveless t-shirt. I didn't even know there was another word for it. Apparently it's vest. But anyway. So it's, it's crazy. I mean, if you haven't heard about it, look up at what's happening at Evergreen College in Washington State. So they have a day there in which black faculty and students decide to stay away from campus. And this is to highlight the importance of their presence, usually. And this is great. It's a strong message. It has ancient traditions. The plebeians did this in ancient Rome. They all went to a hill somewhere to show the aristocrats that, you know, without us, you're going nowhere. And it worked. However, this year, Evergreen's Diversity Board changed things up and said, this year, white people have to stay away from campus have to, not can, have to. And a professor said, no, no, no way. Because black people choosing not to come to campus is great. It's a powerful message. It shows how different and how worse things would be without them. But imposing an obligation that certain people have to stay away, based on skin colour? It's a very different kind of message, and one that the professor didn't agree with. Ladies and gents, the reactions to this have to be seen to be believed. Like, the videos online are scary. It's like something out of the fucking crucible. The crazy-eyed fanaticism, the slogans, the mob mentality, the rejection of reason, the threats. It's scary. It's pure fanaticism. These people are the leaders of tomorrow, this is where we're heading. By the way, it's not a left-wing or right-wing thing, it's authoritarianism and it's conformity and it's mob mentality. Nor because a professor dared to stand out and to say his opinion. Conformity is dangerous, conforming is an evil thing or at least it enables evil and not enough is said about this. When you just go along with what everyone else in your group says just because you want to belong, that's an enablement of evil. Because, yeah, people do say stuff like, no, we got to be exceptional. But, you know, what they really mean is like, do a lot of sit-ups and post photos of your avocado on toast. Woo, exceptional. But the courage to say something different, to say something unpopular, that's missing. And it's fundamental. And we need to learn to do this. So I have a challenge for you. Call in. Tell me something unpopular, something that you really believe, something that you believe is true and that you want to express, but that people in your group don't agree with. This is a genuine challenge. Show me. Show me the courage to stand out from the crowd for what you think is true and right. And if you don't or you can't think of anything where you disagree from all of your group, then maybe that's a question for you to ponder. Good evening, men and gentle ladies, it's Patrick. Now, for the past few days, I've been going through Timothy Snyder's book On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Now, these lessons are highly relevant to our social political environment for obvious reasons, and we could all do with hearing and digesting them, or so I decree, in order to get a new appreciation of how we might act, both towards power, and more importantly, towards those around us that disagree with us. Now, we've reached lesson 9, and if you want to listen to the earlier lessons from this book and you're on iOS, check out the On Tyranny episode under the Episodes tab. Now, lessons 9 and 10 are Be Kind to Language and Believe in Truth. Now, I should be grouping them together because they get at the same thing, and it's uh, a thing that is an alarming problem I increasingly see manifest around me, both online and in real life, as if online weren't real life anymore. Geez. Anyway, the point is, Authoritarian regimes thrive on the control of language and the rejection of truth. The control of language and the rejection of truth. Ringing any bells? Anyway, let's start with the language point. It's nothing new to say that dictators like to use simplified language and slogans that function as signals to differentiate the in-group from the out-group, right? But there's another element to this. By controlling and restricting language, an authoritarian can actually limit your ability to think about reality. The philosopher Wittgenstein, who you might hear more about on my episode, The Philosophy of Language, famously said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And what Wittgenstein is saying with this is that without the right words, it becomes impossible to even formulate the abstract thought. Now, a great example of this is in Orwell's book, 1984, in which the Big Brother's regime presents the populace with a shortened dictionary. And by dumbing down the language, we dumb down the discourse until it becomes impossible to think clearly about what's going on. See anyone around using this tactic these days? Similarly, authoritarians will try to come up with catchphrases and buzzwords that lend themselves to be repeated so they spread like a meme or a virus. The constant usage of certain words entrenches them as fact, so something false can become true through repetition. Now, recently, the clinical psychologist Jordan B. Peterson ran into trouble with his uh, college in Toronto and the Canadian justice system because he spoke up against the C-16 laws in Canada that have come into force, right? Now, these laws, if you don't know, now make it hate speech, which is a criminal offence, if you refuse to use certain preferred gender pronouns from an ever-expanding list that has gone up to 72 pronouns. So that's right. If you refuse to call someone a pixie kin, I'm not making this up and that's a person who identifies as a pixie or if you don't call them a pixiekin because you simply don't know that you should that is now classified as hate speech a crime the point here is that the imposition of certain words forcing you to say them which is different from saying oh it's rude to use certain words like cunt or the n-word oh shit I shouldn't have said cunt there right cunt anyway blah. it's it's not as bad in the UK just so you know anyway pff, that's actively You know, that's prohibiting you from saying a word, it's saying it's impolite. But this is different, this is more, because it's actively forcing you to use the words. It's imposing words that you must use, and that's an act of oppression, and is always ideological in nature, and is highly authoritarian. So if you want to stand up to authoritarianism and groupthink, be kind to your language. Avoid saying the words everyone else says, just so you can fit in. Use the words you want to use, and don't bow down to using words imposed from above. Value your language, and value your speech. Um, I feel I should say some inspiring message at the end. Well, maybe that was the inspiring message, right? Anyway, I'm out. Bye. Hey everyone, so uh, let's continue our journey through historian Timothy Snyder's book On Tyranny, lessons we can learn from the 20th century dictatorships and the circumstances that led to their rise. Lesson number 10 is believe in the truth. This one feels incredibly relevant, right? Because, what am I, the quintillionth person you've heard today talk about post-truth? Okay, so, authoritarian regimes are natural enemies of the truth. Actually, you know what, scrap that, let's start again. The truth is the enemy of any ideology. Because ideology isn't about truth, right? It's about a narrative. It's about selling you a story. It can be a story about some higher destiny that's embedded within your genetic code or your culture. And all you need to do to access that destiny is get rid of whoever's in the way. Uh, Black people, Mexicans, Muslims, gays and Jews, or infidels, but still definitely gays and Jews. Uh, None of these ideologues like the gays and the Jews. I don't know what they've done to them. Or maybe it's a different story, it's a story about a world where every single interaction is political, from the little girl buying candy in a store, uh, was was it a white girl and was the store clerk Korean, to uh, paying rent. It's all just a series of interactions and battles between oppressors and victims. So there's thousands of ideological stories out there, and the truth is always their enemy, because what matters more than the facts is the narrative. And if a fact disproves the narrative, one of two things happens. The first is, the fact gets called a lie, and that's a classic Hitler move. Or it gets called fake news, like Trump does. This is classic because it calls into question the sources of truth and the concept of truth itself. And why is that important? Well, because if there's no truth, it's impossible to criticize power because there's no basis upon which to do so. And the second thing that happens is the fact gets ignored entirely so it doesn't infect the purity of the narrative and the morality of the person Telling the fact is called into question. So um, if you mention that there's a factual correlation between terrorism and Islam, you're an Islamophobe. If you mention that there are real problems with the notion of the gender wage gap, then you're a sexist and so on and so on. Ideologies hate facts because they debunk narratives and ideologies and by extension dictatorships are all about these grand narratives. That's why authoritarian regimes have this open hostility to reality and science. Climate change, anybody? Fake news. And you know, screw what 99% of recognized scientists say. Screw what biologists say about gender. It doesn't fit the story that the hard left are pushing. Authoritarians are enemies of the truth. The book even says they did a study of Trump's speeches before the election and about 76% of his utterances were demonstrably false. Which is as incredible as it is unsurprising, sadly. But basically, what's happening here is that through the abandonment and even the stigmatization of truth, we're creating narratives, these fictional counterworlds to inhabit. And these become the story that's sold to believers, like in a cult. And just like in a cult, the believers in these fictional worlds have mantras that they repeat, you know, build that wall, or whatever chant the protesters on college campuses are saying these days. Dictatorships begin with our abandonment of critical thinking in favor of these big narratives. Narrative over fact. This is a Nietzschean way of looking at the world. And it's not a left or right wing thing, it's an authoritarian thing. Critical thinking is the natural enemy of authoritarians everywhere, because critical thinking is all about questioning. Uncritical thinking just accepts. So I guess the lesson is that we must always question our narratives and make sure that they are backed by actual facts. Not supposed facts, but actual hard evidence. So be critical and always believe in the truth. Fact over narrative, not narrative over fact. And you know what? Uphold the truth in your conversations with family and friends and strangers, even if it's uncomfortable. Don't be aggressive. But if you know the truth and you know the facts and you got the evidence, be firm. As Timothy Snyder says in the book, post-truth is pre-fascism.